0: Though I enjoy time in the garden, surrounded by bees and my children, the only thing I'm really good at growing are garlic, strawberries, cats, and those aforementioned children. If you'd like to learn more about how to shape the landscape and improve your designs, I'd like to suggest one of my friends with a wide range of hands-on experience, Carl Trean of Food Forest Card Game. Lately I've been following his blog, where you'll find a number of useful articles including 21 Choice Perennial Vegetables for Four Season Climates, and four perennial beans for your food forest. While you're there, you can also pick up a copy of Food Forest Card Game and further your understanding of the relationships that make a permaculture garden an integral part of your local ecology. You can find all of that and more by visiting foodforestcardgame.com and clicking on blog. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Owen Wormser. Owen is a sustainable landscape designer from Western Massachusetts and author of Lawns into Meadows Growing a Regenerative Landscape from Stone Pier Press. This specialty in landscapes forms our conversation today as we discuss his design process of creating meadows. This includes using nurse crops for establishing a meadow, designing with a variety of plant heights, bloom colors, and a resilient mix of species in mind, how to make meadows appear intentional as well as appealing to neighbors, using grasses as the framework that ties our design together, the role of a meadow in an ecological landscape, workhorse plants for our designs, and getting started with our own meadow. Enjoy this conversation with Owen, and I'll join you again after. Then, Owen, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to designing in the landscape and writing your new book, Lawns into Meadows?
1: I grew up in the country. I actually grew up without electricity. So that was a really formative part of uh, my life. And where I grew up in central Maine was very rural. There weren't many people around. So I spent a lot of time outside. And um, because of not having electricity, I wasn't distracted by TV, which was in the last millennium. And there was no internet anyways. But um It was really a pretty simple existence, and I was really close to plants and what was going on around me. So I happened to be someone that worked for, and I was really interested in what was going on around me, and I started learning about plants and nature. And it was always something that I wanted to take with me as an adult, and that, in part, led me toward my interest in landscape architecture, which I went to undergrad for and got a degree in in 1998. And then I went on to work in the landscape design field because I wanted to work with plants and I wanted to be able to be outside, but also work with design and an aesthetic artistic component of this all. So that's in a nutshell, kind of the trajectory of where I'm coming from.
0: And then when did you start your design company? Because you are a professional designer doing implementation with Abound Design.
1: Yeah. So when I um graduated my landscape architecture program, I started my own design build company, which I ran until 2010 or so. And I sold it then and started another business, which is the company that I own and run now called Abound Design. And basically I wanted to, uh, To do this type of work where I have a small sort of hands-on design-build business so that I could gain direct experience with working with plants and also design, really being able to have that sort of continuity from the design, beginning of the design process all the way to the follow-up when the garden's built or the landscape's built was something that I was really interested in because I wanted to really... Kind of have everything be integrated. So that was a driving force behind me doing the type of work that I do and, and running these businesses that I've
0: started. And then was it your experience interacting with your clients and transforming their lawns and landscapes that led you to this interest in moving away from lawns into meadows and ecologically functional spaces?
1: Yeah. I, um, early on, understood the burden that lawns pose on the landscape. I didn't have maybe some of the hard data, but it was very obvious to me just ecologically, biologically that they were detrimental. And I was always trying to get clients to move in that direction. And indeed, a lot of times we were taking up lawn and putting in low maintenance gardens and things like that. But meadows became an important part of that focus because really meadows are one of the most low-maintenance landscapes and they require very few inputs. So they really fit into the objectives that I was focused on of sustainability and regeneration. It's only more recently that sort of the general public has become more open to taking up lawns and transforming them into other types of uses, in particular meadows, but other types of gardens too. So that's, that's a, a more recent phenomenon, maybe in the last five years, even in the last year or so, it seems like uh, the level of interest in that's picked up. It used to be something that people, most people wouldn't even consider doing.
0: When you refer to a meadow, what do you mean by that? Like, what does that word describe for you?
1: Yeah, so a meadow really is a grassland an area that is filled with grass and flowering, what are known as forbs, which are basically just clumps of flowering plants that like to grow in meadows. Grass is integral to an area being meadow. It's also a space that has to get, you know, around at least half a day of direct sun and doesn't harbor woody clamps. So no trees, no shrubs. There's a number of meadow-like environments all around the world, whether they're savannas in Africa or steppes in Asia, of course, plains in the United States and prairies as well. These are all meadows, essentially, so they're basically grassy areas without trees or shrubs that are open and sunny.
0: Now, when you're working with clients and looking to move a lawn to a meadow, how intentional is this process? I ask that because when I first came across this idea, probably eight or nine years ago, early in my permaculture career, the idea was that we could just leave a section of land kind of barren, unmowed, and just see what would grow up to allow the seed bank of what was there to develop, you know, mow a path around it so that your neighbors realize that this was intentional and just kind of let it go. What are you working with in order to develop meadows these days?
1: Yeah, so the approach that you just laid out is one of the approaches that I mention in the book. And really, there's sort of a spectrum of possible ways to go about turning a lawn into a meadow. When you live in a residential area, it is important, I think, a lot of times to kind of let people know that it is an intentional effort and to have sort of a strip that's mowed around it a lot of times can kind of signal that. So that's uh, I just wanted to throw that out there because that's a really good inclination on your part. But really, the approach that I espouse that gives people the most control over the end result is to actually eliminate the lawn entirely by either tilling or using solarization. Recently, I've been experimenting with using a sod cutter, removing the grass, the turf, composting it, and then tilling uh, once or twice and planting right into that. So if you get rid of the existing plants, there's a much higher probability that what you seed in will establish. There's focus for long-term sort of survivability of the meadow. focus should be on perennials, particularly native perennials. They take a little bit to establish. could be like a year or two before they really start coming up. So usually it's best to put in what I call a nurse crop, uh, which is basically an annual crop that will fill out the exposed space that's been tilled where where the lawn's been removed for that first year before things really start filling out.
0: So you're planting some biomass as a form of annual ground cover for that first year or two while your perennials establish themselves and begin to grow out and fill in that space?
1: Exactly. And the, the nurse crop serves to protect the seedlings. They help with erosion control and they also can keep some weeds from coming back in. But um, one really important piece is that when the nurse crop establishes, it, it also covers any exposed soil in the short term. I've been experimenting with using annual flowering plants some um, this year, especially um, where I've been trying out things that are more temporary, like uh, poppies, to provide some color and make that first year a little bit more attractive, essentially. But many different species can be used as a nurse crop. Historically, I've used annual rye, and that's what a lot of seed providers recommend.
0: When I had experimented with this some, I think I was using spelt because it was recommended for soils that were rather poor and could grow fairly quickly, and then be able to use that, the stalks then the following year as a mulch over top of the plants.
1: That sounds perfect. And there's a number of species that can be used. The trick really is whatever you put down initially as a nurse crop, you don't want it to grow so densely that it's going to inhibit the perennial plants in the meadow from
0: growing. So you wouldn't be using like recommended seeding rates from your seed company, but backing that back some so that it's just kind of a, a sparse cropping to help but not to drown out.
1: Yeah, so depending on the species that is being used as a nurse crop, there are different rates at which it can be seeded. And I do take guidance a lot of times, particularly to figure out the volume of seed, because that really determines relative to the area the rate of coverage. And it's going to vary relative to the nurse crop you're using, but also when you're planting the perennial seeds. It varies plant plant. They have different germination rates and they have different weights and different sizes. And so there's a whole level of complexity that unless you work at that particular seed house, you don't really have that information because it's going to vary from seed house to seed house because the seeds are collected in different places. So I I lean on them for that information as well.
0: So that's as you're developing this idea of a specific meadow, working with the different companies that you're purchasing seed from to develop a comprehensive plan for what this is going to look like. Not only as you're planting those annuals, but also filling in perennials and getting kind of a trajectory for where you'll be going over the first year of installation and those to follow?
1: So, there's a couple sort of nuances to this in regard to using annual flowering plants for that first year. Historically, like in the 80s and 90s, early 90s, annual meadows were a bit of a fad. And a lot of people ended up being really disappointed because a lot of the general public doesn't necessarily understand the differences between annuals and perennials in any great detail, and so people kind of expected the annuals to self-seed or come back, and a lot of times it didn't. So, on the other hand, meadows that are really long-lasting and have a lot of ecological value and provide beauty for decades—they're always made of comprised of perennial plants. So, there's sort of the "never the twain shall meet" sort of approach um, in terms of seeding in meadows, I'm finding and experimenting with the possibility that both of those work well in conjunction with each other. And so that's an approach that I think is is very much worth investigating further. Similarly, another nuance to the whole thing is that in terms of the designing of the actual seed mix itself, because that's what ends up really creating the design of the meadow, because the seeds are being dispersed throughout, and how they sprout and what sprouts and how they fill out is what determines the end result. So I try to do as much of that, um, figure out as much of that on my own as possible. I start by using a process of elimination that begins with assessing the site and making sure that I have a clear understanding of the site. And this is usually the most important part You need to understand the site well so that you can match the species to those conditions so that they're happy to live there and they establish and continue to thrive there. If they're not happy with the site, seeds can be kind of fickle and they won't necessarily do anything. So I try to match the species that I choose to the site conditions. And then I also add other layers that are design considerations such as height, I don't want to use plants that are going to be overly aggressive. There's a few species sometimes that are like that. I also want color that's going to be blooming, so there's flowers blooming throughout the course of the season. And I usually it's important to have a certain volume of grasses in a meadow too because that's what creates the meadow look and keeps it from being too bulky when all the flowers go by and there's heads. Dead. So I'm using uh, a lot of those sort of, Principles to determine what seeds I'm actually putting in the next. So then I'll put together a list and then I run that by my seed provider. And they're going to tell me sometimes it maybe be are available and I have to decide on whether I'm going to try to get them from somewhere else or not. So that's basically the approach. I really only use the seed provider myself to get the ratios and the volumes of the seed right. However, they are a really good resource for. People who are trying to figure out what species to use and seed providers are really generally available to help you kind of navigate that and make some of these design decisions that I was just describing.
0: And with what you're saying, it's interesting to hear the way that you're laying this out because many of the design processes you're going through when it comes to the way that it looks and the way that it feels are the kinds of things that I think about when I see something that I really like that I haven't necessarily given language to with the color and how it looks throughout the season and everything else. And so I was wondering, when you're putting those different elements together, how much of that is being guided through your client process? And how much of it is you presenting this idea to your clients and selling them on it? And in that process, like, what are the different elements that you look for in putting together a meadow?
1: I generally don't make a very strong pitch for my work in general at this point in time. I really am fortunate in that I have clients that find me that really want the type of services that I offer. And at this point in time, most of the Meadow requests I get are from people who are already on board. It's really kind of luxurious as a designer that way because I can just focus on the actual process itself. However, giving people the general public and understanding of why meadows are important and being able to make that pitch is like terribly central to this whole goal of getting rid of this massive area of the United States that is mode turf, an area the size of Washington state. According to um, some NASA satellite data that's been analyzed, that area, which is I think around 63,000 square miles is mowed turf in the United States. So anyways, in order to get people to understand this, the general public has to have a better understanding that meadows are beautiful, that meadows are well-maintenance, that meadows aren't something that sort of gets out of control, especially if they're maintained, which entails mowing once a year to keep wooden plants from growing in there. And also that meadows create a level of abundance and ecological health that is completely opposite of the effect that lawns create. So I do try to educate my clients, even if they're on board, just so they understand what they're getting into and how positive the effect can be.
0: Could you expand on what the design elements are that you're looking to implement overall with a meadow? So
1: my goal generally is to create something that is able to be self-sustaining as much as possible. So that means something that can regenerate itself either by spreading through runners or seed, something that is able to exist without fertilizer or water, which is pretty easy with meadows because they're very, very tough and don't need that sort of thing. But also something that is going to live in harmony with itself, meaning that all the species that I use aren't going to, no one species is going to dominate. So I try to focus on plants that are a certain height. If they're too tall, then it's hard to look out over a meadow and it can be a little bit too much to take in, especially if it's over four or five feet tall. And then if they're too short, they don't necessarily read the way we expect a meadow to read visually. So I'm usually shooting for something that's around two to four feet in height. I am focusing on getting a range of flowering times starting in the spring, ending in the fall. I'm trying to have two to four, maybe sometimes five grass species that are going to be able to support themselves. And that's an aspect of the self-sustaining part that I try to use plants that don't flop over too easily. And so certain plants that aren't rigid or prone to that, I generally avoid. Client consideration is a big part of it. Sometimes people don't like certain colors or they prefer certain colors or they, you know, they just want to focus on white or whatever it might be. And that's often a major design component as well. So really I'm sort of stacking um, almost like layers over each other. And that's sort of a process of elimination that I use in selecting species. And that's, that's basically how I end up with the final plant list and the final design that I'm working with.
0: As permaculture practitioners, a lot of times we're trying to move a landscape through succession to the forest, but I think about conversations I've had with people like Bern Sweeney from the Stroud Water Research Institute that, that one of the things we can do to protect our waterways is to have meadows and grasslands before we reach our forested sections, and the way that we can work on kind of arresting succession with a meadow can create a great deal of functionality within our landscape, particularly for our pollinators. As we look at things like monarch butterflies and bees, the role that a meadow can have in this process. Also for folks who aren't necessarily really big on growing a food garden or wanting large plants, the role that a meadow can have in the landscape.
1: What you're describing is... um is really well laid out in that a meadow is essentially an arrested landscape that um, is sort of a pause in the in the direction towards succession and forest establishing. But I think it's important to look at each landscape on its own merit and under its own circumstances. And some landscapes lend themselves to the creation of forest and food forests and um, woody plants more than others and in residential settings a lot of times it can be nice to have open space and the thing with meadows also that you allude to is that they're incredibly easy to take care of and not as complex once they're in, they're in whereas a food forest or something in that direction can take a certain level of nuance and skill to be able to design and create over time too. One really important fact that I think people should consider when they're thinking about this subject is that meadows have been shown to be incredibly effective at sinking carbon. And so, this is a solution that people can use in their own yard that doesn't necessarily involve a lot of effort, doesn't involve a big investment. And once a meadow is established, those meadow plants, a lot of them, have very deep roots. And because they're not woody plants, they don't really store the carbon that they inhale as carbon dioxide and break down. They don't store that in their trunks or their limbs like trees do. They send most of it into the ground, which then goes towards feeding microbes and mycelium in the ground. and, And large amounts of carbon end up sequestered in the soil. There's not a lot of studies done on this, but the ones that have been done uh, clearly show that that there's a massive ability to sequester carbon. So this is a really wonderful approach for people in a residential setting to have a positive impact on the ecosystem that way. But then also, as you alluded to, Scott, pollinators and wildlife benefits enormously from the presence of meadows, and it's a pretty wide spectrum of animals that benefit from meadows, pretty much all of them, because they bring in insects, insects bring in birds, and also the seeds from the meadows bring in birds and small rodents, and then predators show up, and they're really sort of a foundation that the food chain relies on. So they're incredibly beneficial on all these different levels.
0: And I would like to backtrack a little to what you were saying about the plants that go into your meadow designs, and you mentioned grasses. How do the grasses that you're selecting for a meadow differ from what someone might already have in their lawn? Because of, as you mentioned earlier, about pulling up turf and tilling and working in compost and all of this other material to kind of restore the landscape away from lawn, how does this vary from what we might already have there?
1: Most lawn grasses are what are called cool season grasses, which means they like to grow outside of the intense heat of summer. So usually they do most of their growing in spring and fall, and that's why you see a lot of lawn grasses in hot, dry areas turn brown in the summer, because that's what those species do. But then there's also a whole group of grasses that are known as warm season grasses, and these are grasses that like to grow during the heat of summer, like little blue stem is an example of that type of grass, gizacrium, if I'm saying that right, Scop- scoparium. those warm season grasses tend to grow as clumps, and therefore they allow other meadow plants to grow amongst them much more readily. Cool-season grasses, the grasses that are grown in lawns, Usually spread by runner and grow very densely, and that's their whole point. Is that they, if they're they really fill out more, and then they create that turf effect. The reason just seeding into an existing turf or an existing lawn isn't necessarily as effective as starting with a blank slate, where you're just working with cleared soil, is because those cool season grasses can, because of the the dense density in which they grow, it can make it difficult for meadow plants to sprout and get through. So that's really the primary difference between the types of grasses that you're dealing with. And both of them can work and there's no right approach. And sometimes I'll actually have one or two cool season grasses and then warm season grasses. But in general, warm season grasses are going to be most effective in giving you the fullness that you're looking for in a meadow where there's other plants not just on grass. And also, they tend to stay upright and last longer into the fall of winter, which can be a really beautiful um, effect aesthetically, but also in terms of providing feed for wildlife.
0: From that description, then, are grasses kind of forming the base that you're designing the rest of your plants around, or are they what you're kind of filling in, or am I thinking about this too much in, like, segmented pieces?
1: No, I think what you're getting at makes a lot of sense because really, I kind of look at them as the matrix in which the meadow grows out of. Without the grasses, it's not really a meadow in the same way that we think of meadows. Meadows are grasslands, And the grasses are what creates the texture that we see when we see a meadow. And without that texture, it's also not a Aesthetic in the same way, because flowering plants go by a lot of times they end up being a bulky and that's old seed heads, things like that. And some of that can be attractive, but when you have a lot of it, it can start to kind of detract from the overall look. And grasses, grasses help in that way aesthetically, but much more importantly, they really do provide the sort of ecological function of holding the meadow together and creating the foundation out of which everything's growing. So they're they're terribly important in a
0: meadow. Yeah, and that mention of heavy deadheads and things like that makes me think of some of the fields in the local parks here in central Pennsylvania will often be filled with milkweed. And when everything's growing, it's absolutely beautiful, but come fall, it just kind of looks like a monocrop with all of those pods just kind of sitting there. And it just makes me think of that, was you said, visual texture that we can develop by designing throughout the entire season and the way that that extends into the periods where we no longer have growth?
1: You know, in some cases, it doesn't matter what things look like if the value ecologically is so important or it's in a situation where no one really minds. And so each site really has to be kind of assessed on its own terms in terms uh, relative to its ecological sort of function that way and it's in its aesthetic function. Um, the reason I'm kind of parsing this a little bit is because so the large part of the population in general knows very little about plants and has no knowledge of ecology or permaculture or, you know, anything in that direction. And if they do, their their knowledge a lot of times is fairly limited. So what people do understand is how things look. And if things start looking kind of uh, run down or unkempt, then people really leap towards this assumption that things are falling apart or they're abandoned or that they're messy or there's too many ticks or there's sort of this almost like fear response or just a pejorative kind of perspective that's applied and it's really worth mentioning because The vast majority of the population looks at meadows from that perspective. And all of the nuance that we're talking about is something that the larger population doesn't really know about yet.
0: And it touches on so many of the issues that I've encountered in bits and pieces over the years when it comes to doing restorative work. I think of one of my instructors who often said to us, unless you're taking human beings into account, then why are you designing? That in many cases, you know, nature doesn't need us there. And with the exception of some places where humanity has done great amounts of destruction through like mine tailings and other things where we probably should be going back in and doing landscape restoration, that most of our work, however, is to meet human needs in some form, whether it's aesthetic or for food value or something like that. So having these kinds of conversations and touching those on those elements makes sense in that regard. And I also think about... Like all the weed ordinances and all of these other pieces that I've encountered that can make doing this kind of work very difficult. But if you have a pleasing garden, you have a couple signs out that talk about how they're supporting pollinators, or like some of the um, habitat restoration programs that you, that you can get certificates for for your garden. That by going through those processes, they allow us to do this restorative work in a way that is not only appealing but also gets buy-in then from our neighbors and our community.
1: Yeah, that's really well said, and education and outreach is probably as important as anything in regard to getting this idea of meadows out into the world, that we can have meadows instead of lawns. Really, people don't know much about this at all, and there's this habituated acceptance of lawns. So even people who kind of intuit or understand on some level that lawns aren't that great. They're used to them, and they're considered normal. And there, in many cases, there's ordinances or prohibitions on even getting rid of your lawn and putting it in a meadow. Even when you can, a lot of times it will bring sort of nastiness in your direction. People can have a really difficult time in uh, neighborhoods where they do this sort of thing, and people can give them a hard time. So signage, education... Those things go a very long way. But also aesthetics, and I couldn't agree more in terms of what you were saying about designing for humans, but I really want to say that as a designer, I, really, I also believe that, and I think this is sort of uh, included in, in what, you were, what you were presenting, but I just want to say explicitly that I feel it's possible to really hit all of the check boxes. So I'm thinking of pollinators, and I'm thinking of all the different animals that might use a meadow but I'm also thinking of the client and their preferences and on top of that, the general public and what they might think. And with good design, all those checkboxes can be checked.
0: And that takes me back to the thoughts of permaculture design and how as we use these ideas and really apply the ethics and develop principles in the spaces and landscape where we are, that we can be taking into consideration our personal needs, the impacts on those folks around us and on the other than human as well and be able to pull all this together into something that is deeply meaningful, valuable, and has an impact on everyone who's touched by it.
1: That is so true. And I couldn't agree more as a designer. That's really my focus and my goal is to, to make that happen on all those levels. It takes a lot of practice because you have to take the time to learn about plants but you also have to learn about design, and you also have to learn about how to communicate with people, which is probably the hardest part of of my job in general. Not that my clients are difficult ever because they're lovely, but just being able to convey some of these understandings and details, there are so many different layers and levels to it, and to be able to work with a client and also the public to make everything happen takes a lot of communication skills. So there's all these different levels that are part of the design process that are very important and add up to being able to check all those boxes.
0: What are some of the plants that you're really focusing on and have a lot of joy and interest in working with when you're putting together meadows?
1: There's um, there's a number of plants that kind of end up being workhorse plants at least east of the Rockies because it's a little bit different on the west coast but there's also parallel species that fall into that category there and I tend to focus on them pretty regularly with meadows because they kind of do everything that we need them to do I actually profile 21 of them in lawns into meadows for the reasons that I'm saying because they're really good starting points and sort of foundational plants but one of the grasses that I use a lot in drier conditions is Little Bluestem. Little Blue Stem is really beautiful grass. It's very tough. It can take drought and it grows amongst everything else really well. And it has a beautiful effect. In the light, it stays upright into the winter and has this beautiful color. So that's a grass that I use a decent amount. In wetter settings or where there's a little bit more moisture, a lot of times I'll be using Tannicum Virgatum, which is switchgrass. Up here, where I live in western Massachusetts, it doesn't grow super tall. It's something you probably want to be a little bit more careful about using in the south. So those are two grasses that I use fairly frequently. And there's also a number of flowering plants, like echinacea, purple cone flower. Echinacea purpurea, black-eyed Susans, which is Rudbeckia, butterfly weed. I use a lot of milkweeds, and butterfly weed is Asclepius tuberosa, tuberosa, which uh, really loves dry conditions. And also there's one called Swamp milkweed, Asclepius incarnata, and that's a plant despite its name that can take a lot of different types of conditions. And, um, You know, I use yarrow, I use anise hyssop. They're definitely species that I err towards because they're low maintenance, they're the right height, they flower for long periods of time. Pollinators and other wildlife adore them. And yeah, they're really easy to take care
0: of. Yeah, and a lot of those are plants that, you know, I have growing here in my children's gardens in Pennsylvania and have seen around. So yeah, it sounds like this has and applicability for a wide range of climates here in the eastern United States. And as you say, for anyone else who's interested, they can likely find analog plants to be using wherever they are in the world.
1: Yeah, and I I mentioned some in the book that worked on the West Coast too, but yes, analog plants around the rest of the world, because the principles are the same. And also an interesting thing is that many meadow plants end up being really uh, useful medicinals. So many of the plants that I just mentioned, like echinacea or hyssop, are like very important medicinal plants. There's a a very long list of plants that like to grow in meadows that have been used for medicine for thousands of years and are still used in Western Chinese or Native American uh, medicinal practices.
0: A reason to break out our herbals whenever we're looking up what we want to put in one of our meadows so that they can include even more function for the human and other than human.
1: Exactly. And really, I think um, the more I work with plants, and I mentioned this also in a section of the book, is the more I understand the perspective of Native Americans where they talk about how they learned herbalism and usefulness of plants from animals. And basically, animals use plants as herbal medicine. And when herbivores, for instance, graze in the meadow, it's very specific in terms of what they eat and Since I'm talking about meadows being uh, grazed on, usually once a meadow is established, they can handle some of that without any negative effect aesthetically and its function. But I just mentioned also that animals are very selective and incredibly knowledgeable about when and what to eat and what the potential benefits of eating those plants are.
0: And through our observations, we can continue to design with nature, both from our observation of plants as well as the animals that come in and forage and eat them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I've learned much of what I've learned from those observations and reading about other people's observations. And I think that's a level of knowledge that we need to reconnect with and also regain if we can't connect with it through sort of historical sources. We need to work on that observation and really kind of regain that level of intimacy.
0: And beyond your book, Lawns Into Meadows, what other resources would you point people to if they would like to learn more about any of the points that you mentioned today?
1: Yeah, so we're covering a pretty wide range of sort of topics, but in terms of the sort of core pieces related to meadows, there's an increasing amount of information and, and resources available out there. There are organizations like PollinatorPathways.org. There are also many groups, state by state and locally, that are focusing on getting pollinator habitat built, either residentially or in the public space. So it's helpful to look around in your state and look around locally and see if any of those organizations exist. Like some of the better known ones, like for instance, is Ladybird Johnson, Wildflower... Museum. I'm trying to remember the last part of their title, but they're in Texas. And a lot of states actually at this point in time have organizations focused on restoration and regeneration of meadows. So those are great resources. Um, I mentioned pollinator org, Xerxes Society. They're a great organization and have a lot of free information around how to go about this. But then also a lot of the seed providers that provide native meadow seeds. Many of their websites have detailed information about the plant and how to do this. And a lot of the native seed suppliers also have regionally specific and site specific to conditions of a site uh, seed mixes that you can buy. So those are all great resources. Another one that's worth just giving shout out to is Wild Ones. Uh, wildones.org, They basically are focused on this exact topic and getting more people around the country to turn lawns into meadows and turn their yards into habitat. And they, I think, have chapters in, I know it's over a dozen states. It might be well over that at this point in time. So they're all over at least part of the country. They're worth checking out.
0: And in the little bit of time that we have remaining, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners?
1: Yeah, I think um, it's easy to be discouraged by sort of the, the weight of the world, so to speak, and the ecological and political situations that we find ourselves in, particularly, I mean, it's such a vast list of those problems. But since we're focused on sort of ecological and landscape matters here, that side of things alone is is pretty upsetting a lot of times in terms of the amount of habitat destruction and just where we've ended up in general, that we have an area the size of Washington State that is mowed grass most of which doesn't, doesn't even have yet used um, in this country. So um, it's easy to be discouraged, but we got here by, you know, a thousand cuts, literally cutting down tree by tree. And at the same time, just transforming part of your yard and creating pollinator habitat and sinking carbon into the soil starts to change the tide and this is the only way that we're ever really going to make a bigger difference and create a healthier ecosystem and and really people have to wake up to the fact that they're responsible for the well-being of the ecosystem around them and at large and one of the most effective ways you can that you can do that and help out is by turning your lawn into a
0: meadow well thank you for that and everything else you shared and for joining me today owen
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me, Scott. It's a pleasure to talk about this stuff.
0: And that was Owen Wormser. Find out more about him and his work at abounddesign.com and his book, Lawns Into Meadows, at stonepurepress.org. As permaculture practitioners, establishing meadows can form an important part of our design toolkit. We can leave an area barren, but intentionally tended it around, to allow the seed bank to grow up, and then select from the species that arise as the base for a meadow or we can choose what to leave intact as we establish a food forest or design around our garden paths. In areas with restrictive covenants on trees and tree heights or in towns with weed ordinances, meadows can be a beautiful way to restore the landscape while skirting those restrictions. If we live along waterways or are farmers trying to reduce the total daily load from runoff and fertilizer, and further reduce topsoil losses, buffer strips of meadows along our streams and rivers can improve water conditions while saving our earth. But those are just my thoughts on meadows in the moment. What are yours? Leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch. Email show at Schedule a call with me at calendly.com permaculture or you can send something in the mail and receive a postcard in reply from my extensive collection by writing to the Permaculture Podcast, PO Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. If you'd like more from the show, become a listener supporter on Patreon, where you can receive a glimpse behind the scenes, including what I'm currently reading and listening to with the weekly update. Share your questions and knowledge in the monthly AMA and join the ongoing conversations about permaculture at patreon.com permaculturepodcast. You can also make a one-time donation, which I'll use for tea and snacks while I'm editing, and for the expansion of the show, at paypal.me permaculturepodcast. You can also find the show on Instagram, at permaculturepodcast, or send me a tweet on Twitter, at permaculturepod. Until the next time, spend each day planting meadows while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.